KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Hey, I'm Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project, a podcast that explores black culture as a lifestyle. In our latest episode, me and some friends, including my dad, sit and chop it up about the history of jazz in San Diego. You know, the white club owners, they would bring the black musicians in and like this, you've heard them talk about the Savoy, you've heard them talk about the um, the Cotton Club, you know, well, you know, those were not owned by black people, but they the musicians were in there and, and a form of integration uh, started. That's up next on the PE Project. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You are now tuned to the Parker Edison Project. Project. Good morning, and welcome to Season 3 of the Parker Edison Project. America is responsible for two art forms. Everything else, we borrowed or stole from someplace else. The first is quilting which specifically gave African-Americans a safe place to document their lives and create an identity. Way deeper than you thought, right? The second thing we invented? Jazz. Which essentially did the same thing. It documented. The early 1900s, booking agents called San Diego the Harlem of the West. Venues like the Creole Palace on 3rd and Market were abuzz with top entertainers like Billie Holiday, Duke Ellington, Count Basie. From the 1930s to the 1970s, Southeast Imperial Avenue was the center of black nightlife. Hey, Pop, did uh, does, does jazz start with the Great Migration? Yeah, well, actually, jazz was was in existence be, before the Great Migration, but uh, the Great Migration, in a nutshell, is when African-Americans saw opportunities outside of the South because of what was happening with industry and mainly up, up north in the Midwest areas like the Chicago area with steel. And they just saw ways to get away from the, the Jim Crow rules that were going on in the South, the sharecropping uh, disadvantages that was happening across the board. How it impacted jazz most is because I mean, you know, we all kind of know what New Orleans looks like now. You know, they, they you know they describe it as a melting pot. Uh, the music has always been diverse, and so have the people. But like getting back to this period, New Orleans began to experience what some of the other southern states were um, experiencing: the racism, the uh, violence, and and it was impacting the musicians too. Uh, they couldn't play the places like they uh, used to. So it was kind of like pushing them out. And when the Great Migration came, and like in this particular case, people from Arkansas, Louisiana, they moved up to Chicago, Gary, ultimately into the New York area. So I'm over to Kansas City, St. Louis, Michigan, because of the um, the car industry and stuff. It was about a 70-year period, you know, 1900 to around 1970. But when we look at the, the musical, the jazz area in there would probably be more like from the, the, the late teens into the the uh, 20s and 30s, I think that's where the real influence started. You know, the white club owners, they would bring the black musicians in and like this, you've heard them talk about the Savoy, you've heard them talk about the um, the Cotton Club, you know, well, you know, those were not owned by black people, but they the musicians were in there and, and a form of integration uh, started. You know, it went from the music 
to the singing and it went to the dancing then it went to the poetry and ultimately it went to fashion and style of course we know that it impacted you know the civil rights movement that's exactly what I came to, digging into it. With San Diego in particular, they were saying they had the Creole Palace out uh -huh. here. It was like Cotton Club of the West. Hey, have you ever heard of Black and Tans? I've heard that before. I wrote this down. Hold up. It said, uh, they were nightclubs that flourished in the speakeasy era, catering to Black and mixed race or tan patrons. We had one in San Diego. We had one on Imperial in Southeast San Diego. Who was the other cat out here in San Diego or out here on the West so I should get to? Other than Leon, well, Leon is not you, Leon Alexander. That's and he's, yeah, yeah, definitely. I reached out and Leon was kind enough to agree to an interview. What's your name and what do you do? All right, I am Leon E. Alexander Jr. And I am a drummer, percussionist. My first, my first area of music is jazz, right, of course. But I am a jack of all trades as far as being a musician. So not only do I play with big jazz artists, I play with R&B, pop, classical rock groups, uh, and orchestrally too. So I play in some of the symphony orchestras as well. I grew up in Washington, D.C. This area is very, very rich in musicians and arts and style of musics and things like that, right? When I was a kid, I grew up, they had something called the Washington DC Youth Orchestra Program. There was no other program in the United States like this. It was started in 1963. That kind of jump-started a lot of young musicians where I grew up because you got to go to school and you got to learn in the street too. My father was really big on that. In DC, like we have a music called Go-Go in DC. Yes, right? sir. I heard Go-Go, Chuck Brown and Mm -hmm. EU, all these, all these groups. I grew up in that. That's what that was. That was here, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's how I really started playing drum set, playing go go, <laughs> right? In the parks here in DC, they used to have drummers used to come out on the weekend, bring their stuff and just play, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it was the West Africans or whether it was uh, the Puerto Ricans or the Cubans. So I would go. That's how I learned. Like got into Latin percussion. I would go to the park and play with the cats in the park. <laughs> how, old were, how old were you there? Oh my God, probably about seven or eight years old. You're getting it in the parts. Hey, mm -hmm. Okay, right, okay. Right, right. Yeah, it was both. So, especially for the African American community and music and art, we had to kind of learn it in the streets sometimes, a lot of stuff, right? It's handed mm -hmm. down through the oral tradition, all of that stuff, right? Because, well, a lot of times we weren't allowed to do it in a, in a lot of instances where it was really great. We weren't allowed to be a part of that. What made you want to be an artist? I was sort of born into it, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, my sister was a child prodigy. My late sister, she was a, she was a child prodigy. Mm -hmm. You know, she was playing Chopin when she was five and six. And my dad was the assistant commander. He retired, but he was the assistant commander of the United States Army Band in Washington, D.C. And so that was my foundation, you know, uh, of growing up. Who's the most influential musician in your development? As a little boy, there's a great drummer, Papa Joe Jones. He played with Big Count Basie, all the cats. Well, when I was, uh, I don't know, probably about about six or seven years old, because my dad knew all the cats in the Basie band back then, Papa Joe was still alive. And I got to meet him and had a little impromptu lesson with him as a little boy. And I never forgot. I mean, he was so amazing. It was just unbelievable. He was my first first one. And then Max Roach, Max Roach uh, was a big influence on me as well. I went to undergrad, I went to Oberlin, Oberlin College Conservatory of Music in Oberlin, Ohio. 
they had sort of a program where they were starting to build a jazz program there when I was going there. They, they didn't have one then. So you kind of had to work at it and make things happen for yourself. Well, I hooked it up. So once a month, I would go to Massachusetts because Max Roach was teaching at the University of Mass at that time. And I would take a lesson to him once a month, starting in my freshman year of college. I did that for two years straight. That blew my mind. And this just made me think in such a way of, of play, not only playing drums, but just music and music history and why we do what we do. There's a reason why we play things the way we play it from our ancestors. But those two cats had the, the most lasting influences on me as a young person in what I do as a drummer and a percussionist. When I talk about, when I say jazz in San Diego, mm -hmm. what's the first thoughts that, that come to your mind? My first thought comes about a man named Daniel Jackson. He's the GOAT. I've met him. I played in his quartet when I was a student at UCSD. My straight ahead jazz career as a drummer really took off after playing with him. My first gig in San Diego was at Croce's in the Gaslamp Quarter with Daniel Jackson. He was sort of my other university in straight ahead jazz. He was one of those cats that brought the young cats up and put them in his trio, his quartet, and made mm -hmm. you learn how to play right. That's when sort of Croce's was new. It first, she first opened the place yeah. and it was it was just packed. People came all over to see him, you know, to play. Yeah. And it, it was just phenomenal for me. Jim Jim Croce's wife opened that venue, yeah. Correct. Right. Ingrid Croce, okay. yes. Mm -hmm. okay. Right, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Do you remember any other venues that were prominent at that time? You know, okay, so you had the whole big smooth, they didn't call it really the smooth jazz then, they sort of did. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was really big there too, Humphreys and mm -hmm. it was the Bacchanal, something like that. And then there was, um, oh yeah, Charles McPherson too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, he, you know, he's from San Diego and mm -hmm. lived right in, they had property right on La Jolla. His mother had in from the thirties or something. Mm -hmm. So that's, that all got me started in that whole San Diego music scene back mm -hmm. in the day. Then um, there's a reggae world group from San Diego, Big Mountain. I don't know if you heard that group, Big Mountain. Kino. Yeah. I played in that group. I was in that group from the start as well. Mm -hmm. But it all started in San Diego. All that stuff was happening in San Diego, you know? Always having this conversation with one of my good homeboys about how that's what San Diego is. He's saying San Diego isn't like comparable to the New Yorks, the Baltimores, the, in terms of that for art. And I will argue with him, you're right, but we're this weird springboard. Yeah, it's it's really interesting, right? You're right. Up, yeah, that makes sense. You're right. It is. A, it, it has been a springboard and kind of still is. And there are people that people don't even realize they're there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Two more quick yeah. questions. And right. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of rap. What are your thoughts on sampling? Well, you know what? Uh, sampling was one of those things that technology I knew at some point was going to be able to do. There's a way to use it to enhance music. And I think enhancing music, just like anything that technology does as time goes on, we may be able to enhance and make things better. Like when we record, all the technology that we use to record now, but the things they do enhance the sound. Now, when you try to replace Right. When I think when you want to replace the singer or the musician with a sample, that's mm -hmm. where I get into 
problem with when and i've been in this situation where they wanted to sample four bars of me playing a beat and they sample the sound my sounds then that's it and they use that sample for the whole thing when you do that then you just knocked out somebody's job <laughs> in some ways right then there are cats that want to sample but still want you to play and they want the sample to, to enhance what you're playing and add to it so i've had right. both situations you know I, I haven't really decided if it's terrible or not um but i know that actually some samples have helped me because i'll take that sample and then i'll layer another sound on it and another sound on it and i create this whole new sound that i'm i'm looking for and i, I want to ask you this next question because you're I feel like I'm as deep in rap as you are in jazz, but jazz is definitely rap's predecessor. Jazz is often regarded as, as sort of a, a cautionary tale, though, of what happens when we lose control of the art. Is there a relation between, let's say, Vanilla Ice and Dave Brubeck? Should we be paranoid that rap as a culture might end up hijacked the way other genres? I'll say this. I always say this. It's up to us to remind and to always be in the know of the history of it. Because if the young ones, whoever, whatever color they are, if they don't know the history of it, then it will get lost in a certain way. And this is this is a discussion I have with all of my, um, my, my educator friends and whatnot, you know, in education, especially university level, right? So there are a lot of schools now that have jazz programs, right? Okay? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm just gonna say it, initially teaching, the music of African-Americans in a lot of these programs, not all, but most of even the big ones, there's not an African-American teaching on the staff. And I have a problem with that. How is someone going to teach me about my history who doesn't have that experience? Because our experience in music comes from our life experiences. I personally get more out of a person that I know has had that experience. Even now, I think in some ways, we have certain control over that. And, and the way we have control over that is making sure that we know and we pass it down and we tell them what's what, right? And we're involved in that. You know, you notice some, um, there's a bunch of rap artists getting together with jazz musicians and they're doing their thing together, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I find, I, I think that's phenomenal, right? Because you're hitting it in two different ways of, of our oral tradition and, and getting it getting it out there and it's coming from us <laughs> you know yeah, man. yeah so that yeah. you know that that's my take on all of that we touched on the subject of sampling for a sec sampling is when someone reuses one piece of a sound recording in another sound recording it's a foundational tool of classic hip-hop and an infamous double-sided sword on one hand some jazz acts efforts can go uncredited by rap producers on the other hand an artist can have a second life as crate diggers rediscover them Bob James is a good example of this. It's quite possible his song Nautilus sold more copies as a sample in rap tracks than it did in its initial release. It's fascinating. Let's get a few more examples of classic jazz samples with my guy King Dice on a new episode of MMSM. Howdy y'all, this is Music Millennials Should Music. I'm your host King Dice, musician, social commentator, and connoisseur of the finest of cheeseburgers. And it is my pleasure to introduce our guest. Sean Kantrowitz. That, that is my name. Well, Sean, uh, why don't you tell us what you do? 
It's a great question that I've been sort of redefining over many years, but I guess first and foremost, I am a music lover. I am a musician, a music producer, television producer, podcaster, and author, the you know co-creator and host of The Questions Hip Hop Trivia Card Game, which uh, was published uh, earlier this year for the 50th anniversary of hip hop uh, through Penguin Random House. How did you come up with The Questions Hip Hop Trivia Game? The Questions Hip Hop Trivia started as a live event that we were doing in Los Angeles. Uh, it was myself and a few DJs local to the scene. We wanted to create a trivia night that spoke to the sensibilities of hip hop heads and also provide perhaps a new element to events uh, as people reach a certain age perhaps they no longer want to go to events that start at 11 uh, myself definitely included so that was definitely part of the mo of the questions when we originally started doing it and we would hold live events in los angeles started doing other events around in the area covid halted plans for us to do a live tour we were starting to get offers to take it to other places in the country so we pivoted and i began hosting episodes of what would eventually i guess become a podcast but live trivia on Instagram Live with some of the practitioners of hip-hop. So whereas it started as something that fans and audience members were playing, now they were watching some of our most beloved MCs, rappers, producers, DJs, journalists, media figures test their hip-hop knowledge in a live format. That eventually became a podcast, and then that podcast has now, and game, has now been um, adapted into a card game. Okay, well... It's not what you know, it's who you know. And I, you kind of gave us a little hint that you know some some people. <laughs> so I have a list of people. How about I go through the list and you tell me how you know them? Sure. All right, let's start off with Murs. So I was a fan first. And then I met him through a TV show that we were both actually working on. And we sort of struck up a friendship, realized that we had uh, some mutual connections. And I've had him on the questions. I've had him on Can't Knock the Shuffle, another show that I was doing. And he and I actually last year put out a lot of music together. Uh, I, I produced five singles with him. And I also produced a bunch of songs on an album that he did uh, under the moniker These Hands, which is a group that's him, The Grouch from Living Legends and Reverie, an MC from uh, East Los Angeles. It's surreal for me to say, but like Merce is my friend, which like 20 years ago, that was like... Merce was, you know, my most listened to artist, but he's a great human being and uh, definitely a, a great person to have worked with. How about Dr. Dre? Long story short, I was working and producing and sort of managing an artist that was signed to Aftermath. And, and uh, as a result, I was spending a lot of time in the studio of Dr. Dre, uh, record one in, in Los Angeles. Through some of the work that I was doing at the time, I wound up uh, playing instruments, uh, guitar and bass on a song on Dr. Dre's Compton album that came out as the soundtrack to the Straight Outta Compton film in 2015. Don't have Dre on speed dial, but you know, he, he's definitely, uh, I can confirm that he is uh, the legend that we all think he is. Um, How about Jenny from the block, Jennifer Lopez? 
Jennifer Lopez, I actually don't know. Um, I, I've, I've never met her. I've not been in a room with her. I did uh, wind up uh, contributing to a record that she put out in 2022 that was also a soundtrack that she did for her movie Marry Me. It came out in 2022. My voice is on the beginning of the record. It is a song called After Love, and it starts off with an acoustic guitar and a, a little countin, and that voice is mine. If I ever see her, I'm going to whisper, one, two, three, four. (laughs) Let's get into the meat of this segment. It is called Music Millennials Should Music. We're going to introduce the youth to rap music they should get familiar with. And today, our category is jazz samples. Sean, do you want to lead the way? Absolutely. I mean, the first one that came to mind for me has got to be uh, Q-Tips Let's Ride, which is produced by J.D., J. Dilla, as we all know him now, and it uh, samples... Uh, Joe Pass, the guitarist, his cover of Coltrane's Giant Steps. It's jazzy as all all can be. I mean, obviously you have that very, you know, jazzy Joe Pass guitar interpolating, uh, you know, one of the titans of jazz, Coltrane, and Giant Steps, which is just such a distinct song. And yet it's also so hip hop. You get those those knocking drums and the, the way that the samples come in. Let, let me just be clear. Jay Dilla is my favorite and a track like Let's Ride by Q-Tip is hands down an, an incredible example of his, his uh, prowess behind the boards. That's a great choice. And it is our custom that we give our selection a rating out of five using emojis. Well, I mean, the song is called Let's Ride. It's all about Q-Tip driving around in his car, talking about the music that he listens to in his car. So we got to go with the car emoji for that. And I mean, five cars. That's a great choice. A great choice. The first beat that came to mind for me was from the Mecca and, and the Soul Brother album 1992. It's Pete Rock and CL Smooth, When They Reminisce Over You. And that to me is just the epitome of the jazz sample. Like that's that's a sample that I grew up on. The song is, is dedicated to the, their close friend, Troy Dixon, uh, Trouble T. Roy of Heavy D and the Boys, who passed away in 1990. You know, for such a quintessential song, I'm, I was actually surprised to find out the song only peaked at 58 on the Billboard Hot 100, but it, it's just, it, it encompasses, I think everything right about uh, sampling jazz. To this day, is one of my favorite songs. I'm going to give it five of the prayer hands. Yeah, R.I.P. Trouble T. Roy. So, Sean, where can people stay up to date on you? You can go to questionshiphop.com. That is sort of the hub for all things The Questions. Uh, We're also on Instagram at The Questions Hip Hop and on Twitter at Questions Hip Hop. And then I'm Sean Dammit on all things S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Find me out at these events uh, if you're in the Los Angeles area. Maybe I'll be coming to your uh, neck of the woods soon, too. We got some cool things we're going to be announcing uh, this year. So, yeah. I'm out here. Once again, my name is King Dykes. I am your host, musician, social commentator, and connoisseur of fine cheeseburgers. This has been Music Millennials Should Music. Catch you next time. I have a huge respect for people who learn the entirety of their craft. Fighters who study old champions, writers who've read the classics, politicians who stay up to date with international news. That big picture point of view yields more impressive ideas. When we come back, we'll hear from an artist who does just that. Stay tuned for more of the PEP. 
In 2023, hip hop is turning 50 years old, and there's no better way to celebrate this monumental anniversary than by playing the Questions Hip Hop Trivia Game, based on the acclaimed live event turned online show and podcast of the same name. The Questions Hip Hop Trivia features 300 cards to challenge and entertain everybody from casual listeners to the most diehard liner note reading rap nerds. The Questions Hip Hop Trivia, available wherever you get games and books, or order yours at www.questionshiphop.com. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. And now back to the PEP. PEP. My next guest is very much an amalgamation of live instrumentation, jazz, trap, and a foundational sound that's just now getting its recognition. HBCU marching bands. What's your name and what do you do for a living? Well, my name is uh, Marie Douglas. I'm a musician mostly multi-hyphenated in a lot of different areas so I can make sure I get paid. I arrange music, I compose music, orchestrate music, and I also uh, research. I'm an academic. I write about music, specifically things about black culture. And then also I perform, I conduct, I play my horn, I play the French horn. I even choreograph stuff. The movie Little, I choreographed the dancers, the kids doing the dancers. They were doing HBCU style dance stuff. So when it comes to black culture, I like to depict it through musical lens. How does someone from Atlanta uh, end up playing the French horn? And you're absolutely right to ask that question. Like, you know, our inner city school didn't have any French horns. In my case, I, I had to go to Florida. I, I started playing horn when I went to college at Florida A&M because that's where the, I, I felt like that was a musical mecca. And so that's when I was like, oh, what do they need? What can I guarantee? And French horn was just that because just like you said, it's not black people don't play French horn. <laughs> Super rare space. Our lips are often too big for the mouthpieces made. There are very few horn players with our unique genetic makeup as it relates to that instrument just because the mouthpiece is so small on our lips. Mm-hmm. That rolls right into something I'm curious of is who was your biggest influence in terms of horn players? When I began playing horn, when Marcellus was a beacon of like hope for a black person who wanted to be good at music. For me, that's how I was thinking of it. Like, so when I was a kid, that's when, you know, YouTube was coming out and, and I would go on there and I would just watch him and then I'll be ready. So, you know, seeing those videos, even now, I watch him went in Marcellus, Carnival of Venice, and then go watch him play jazz and justify me, you know? Let me ask you this. What's the intersection of trap music and traditional ensemble music? The HBCU marching band. That's the, that's the intersection. You got the horns. Burn, burn, burn. Burn, burn, burn. Some sustained. That's where I got the idea to orchestrate trap music or any electronic process. Listen to Southern Rap all the way back to Juvenile. And, and, and music in America, period. Nobody don't want to hear this. But music in America, period, can go back to that second line band, which goes back to the Junkanoo. What's the, what's the Junkanoo? 
the junk news out of the out of the Caribbean. You know those bands that are marching down the street with that with the whistle. You know, and half naked people just dancing, and it's just it's it's beautiful. These bands are imitating the black band is imitating the junk news, which is you know is imitating the second line band, which is imitating the junk news. Everybody's just always going back to oh John Philip Sousa, you know the American the military bands. That has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. Respectfully, because it doesn't feel anything like what we're doing. Do you feel like your work is better received in the live performance space as opposed to recordings? I think that it would be best received in person. Depending on the production of the recording, then it may be better recorded just because a lot of it imitates, like I was mentioning earlier, the electronic process. Tell me about the Big Film Energy Tour. There was a concept that I was talking to the people who reached out to me on behalf of Live Nation. And they kind of wanted this thing that was very similar to what basically what would be a classical symphony concert, but from the black perspective. And so their goal when they approached me was to build a scenario that would be for us and also by us. You know, everything doesn't always happen just because budget and things of that nature, how you want it to. But uh, thankfully, we were able to salvage a great, you know, the core of that idea and just make this down to earth yet sophisticated venue where people of color or people who are consider themselves as minorities or whatever could come and just let their hair down while also getting some wine, wearing their pearls, you know, wearing, you know, dressing up nicely. But we still feel like the cookout like that I'm here for that how do you manage stress levels as an artist an academic musician the biggest way that I do is just managing and prioritizing prioritizing what deserves the most energy at any given time what realistically can even handle enough of that energy what I noticed from when I was a child is that a lot of this stuff that I create or manifest in life happens mostly up here in my head so as much as I can do up here, I do. But it comes with just deeply studying. And that doesn't mean getting degrees. I mean, just studying, staying a student of the game and respect the limitations or, you know, the lack thereof. Or, you know, know, and knowing yourself, just self-awareness helps too. You know, gotcha. I know how I, I know how I am. So I'm self-aware. I'm aware of myself. You know, it's just a lot of things that help me to manage. What role does SoundCloud or Spotify or any of the music sharing platforms what role do they play for modern composers huge roles i mean before stuff like soundcloud and any of these platforms youtube oh dear there was really no way for you to just put yourself out there i don't know anybody that's come out in the last 10 years that hasn't utilized some sort of application to assist them to, for me it puts this stuff in my hands it gives me more control over Yes, you're still releasing the bird out into the wind to fly away, but like, as far as the art is concerned, but, and people could like it or dislike it, but the fact is somebody's gonna see it. What it also does for the modern composer is help them to bypass the system. Mm. There are some composers who have been systemically inhibited. You know, just the system isn't conducive to their success. It wasn't considering the things that they would have to deal with when it was being created. So it's like we're, getting the chance to, first of all, rightfully claim things that are ours. 
What does a Grammy nomination mean for you? It checks off a bunch of boxes that have ever happened in my brain. Just being in proximity to a Grammy nomination means that you tend to deal with high quality projects and things like that. And, you know, it just adds credibility to your name, if nothing else. One last question. What's your hope for the future of Black composers? I think that there's uh, certain people have to cross or other folks can walk. And certain composers before me had to do a lot of things that were, you know, you know, things that depicting Black people and Black culture in a way that certain individual wanted them to do it because that's what, you know, they believed about that culture. Not because that's what the Black person was experiencing or, you know, because it's not a monolith. We just all have a similar skin tone and some of our hair curls the same. But for the most part, you know, many of us are so different. I want Black composers to be able to write about whatever they want to write about in music. And no one's expecting them to write about stuff that they maybe don't even identify with. You know, you get called on for different things and I'm blessed to be called on for anything, but... You know, sometimes, you know, people pigeonhole you and put you into a box where, okay, well, we call on this person during Black History Month. Mm. I hope for the future Black people, they can be seen as more than just Black, more than just a, a perspective filler. Just because I'm Black doesn't mean I don't know different genres. Just freedom and expression going beyond what someone sees them as. Marie Douglas is the evolution of jazz music. She's the expansion that happens when we blend what's new with what's worked. It's inspiring to see all the ground she's covering. There's a lot of cats with impressive catalogs. Here's seven people you should get familiar with. Sean Hick, Michael Till, Julian Cantelm, Matt Hall, Anastasia Corral, Ryan Ebal, The Matson Two. You want three more? Nathan Hubbard, Gilbert Castellano, Rebecca Jade. Get busy on those. Hey, Sean, take us out. Hey, this is Sean Cantrowitz, and this is a stuttery, buttery jam off my Missing Socks EP. Thanks for stopping in. The Parker Edison Project is produced and hosted by yours truly, Parker Edison, and of course, the good people at Platform Collection. Be sure to subscribe and catch the next episode on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any comments or questions, visit theparkeredisonproject.com or hit us on Instagram at the PE Project. Chris Reyes is head of audio production.
Lisa Jane Morissette is operations manager, and John Decker is associate general manager for content. This programming is made possible in part by the KPBS Explorer Content Fund. I love saying that because it reminds me of Sesame Street. Y'all stay safe out there. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Barat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu.